Exodus chapter 14. We're walking through the Jesus Storybook Bible as part of Advent, reading a story for each day, <clears throat> or you're supposed to have been. I know we've missed a number of days uh, with our sick family, but we're glad everyone's healthy now. Um, but today is the story of crossing the Red Sea <clears throat> in the Song of Moses. And so uh, we're going to read, rather than reading two full chapters, we're going to read bits and pieces as we go, and we're going to read some other scriptures as well um, that shed some light on what's happening in this story. So before we dive in, let's pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. God, we love you. We love that you've given us a word to read, to study, and to ultimately just immerse ourselves in the story here to learn who you are. So God, would you help us as we read and talk this morning about your word? As we take a break from the screens and the responsibilities of our days and all the things that are just vying for our attention that lie right outside these walls, as we put it all to the side, help our attention to just be focused on you, Lord. And help us to receive this text as a, as a good word from you, teaching us, training us, correcting us. <clears throat> leading us, God. We love you. Lead us to Jesus from this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 14 is a miraculous story. It can be a difficult story, and we don't have time to spend weeks and weeks on this one text, and we really could. There's a lot of different things that are happening in here, but as I read Exodus 14 and 15 this week, I, I was reminded of the way we today in the 21st century handle our problems. I think for many of us, we love to um, blame some outside forces for our problems, right? We, we, we love to not take responsibility for what's wrong with us. Maybe blame, <clears throat> blame others, blame the way we were raised for our failures, our problems, the needs we have. But on the other hand, it's actually become cool to present yourself as uh, problematic and needy. It, it, it's kind of in vogue right now to to curate the kind of neediness we have and then project it like, man, I'm just a failure, I'm no good, look at my messy house, and um, this is actually, it's kind of cool right now to do that. So on the, two, on the two ends of the spectrum, you have, we really don't want to take any responsibility, but then on the other hand, well, if it could actually bolster the way people view me, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in such great need, and I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. Uh, and <clears throat> on that end, I love, I heard this from Jen Wilkin this week. She calls it celebratory failureism. We celebrate our failures and act like that's really what God made us to do. We see actually some people become celebrities and build uh, <clears throat> this entire platform based on being real and authentic as they portray their failures to a watching world. So whether we, I think, try to ignore our needs on the one hand, or we use our needs as a platform to make people like us and gain acceptance and love from others, there's actually a deeper reality that's happening. We all have a neediness that can't be ignored. But we also have a neediness that's deeper than we're comfortable talking about in front of others. Even if we try to use our neediness as a platform and we try to post it on social media and talk about it and and Maybe inwardly we're trying to get some applause for how imperfect we are. There's a depth to our neediness that we're still uncomfortable talking about. There are certain struggles, sins, challenges, problems, areas of unhealth or unwholeness in us um, that we really don't want to use for a platform to talk about. But the good news about our need is that God sees through all of it. 
God sees through us absolving ourselves of responsibility and blaming others. God sees through our using our neediness to try to be some platform to get others to like us. He sees us exactly as we are, and, and God knows our deepest and truest needs better than we actually know them ourselves, which can be really challenging, and we'll talk about that later. But the good news is that God sees you. He knows your needs. He saw the people uh, in Egypt, his people, the Israelites, and he knew what their deepest needs were, even better than they did. And what we're gonna see in Exodus 14 and 15 is how God saves us from our deepest need. We're gonna see our need for salvation, and we're gonna look at God's work of salvation, and then finally we'll look at our response to salvation. So first, let's, let's start by just talking about our need, our need for salvation. Tim Keller um, describes this passage and what happens with God saving people out of Egypt. He describes it as, as their need for salvation having layers. There's these layers that are kind of peeled back by God as you read, <clears throat> not just from Exodus 14 and 15, but as you continue to read in Exodus and the entire Old Testament, you almost discover with every bit of salvation that's offered by God, the problem seems to just get deeper and deeper. And it's not that the problem gets deeper, it's that the problem was that it was that deep all along. So if we look at the layers of salvation that they needed, first of all, the surface level salvation that we see God offering here is that they were saved from Egypt. The truth is that they were in slavery for hundreds of years under a foreign oppressor who had an eye for brutally breaking the will of those under him. They were subject to harsh conditions, threats of death, and they were powerless against these forces of evil. I mean, they they had no cultural influence. They had no authority uh, in the land of Egypt to the point where in Exodus 1, really all we see is this um, brutal oppression, and then all they're doing is they're crying out to God. They, they feel like they don't have anywhere to go, anything to do. How can they ever be saved out of this situation? They needed to be saved from Egypt, but then specifically in Exodus chapter 14, they needed to be saved from death. But God had delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. They're fleeing, they're running, and then all of a sudden, God, uh, again, God knows our deepest needs. Why doesn't God just just move them to the other side of the water? Well, God was getting ready to display his power and his glory to his people. But to do that, he needed to put them in an impossible situation where they couldn't save themselves, which meant causing them to wait, be slow, stirring up Pharaoh to come after them again, and then all of a sudden, here they are, surrounded by death. They look back and they see Pharaoh and his army coming after them. They look ahead and they see a a sea of water. And they essentially say, You brought us out here to kill us, didn't you? Because everywhere we look, we see death. They needed to be saved from death, but they also needed to be saved from themselves. Uh, Read with me verses 10 through 12 of Exodus chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve them, to serve the Egyptians, than to die in the wilderness. I mean, their fear is a little bit justified, right? They look around and they don't see any way out. 
Fear is just an emotion that recognizes a threat against ourselves, and we're not sure how we're going to be safe. It's a threat to our safety. Yeah, they had a threat to their safety. But the reality of part of what Moses is telling by writing this in Exodus 14 and telling us this bit of information about how they responded was to show us that you can take the people out of Egypt, but it's much more difficult to take the Egypt out of the people. See, at least they knew Egypt. At least they were comfortable. Yeah, they might have been slaves, but they had some food. They knew how to do life there. They had gotten used to it after all those years. And this isn't the last time that they're going to grumble and wish they were back in Egypt. So the truth is, they needed to be saved from themselves. They would rather have chosen slavery than to face this kind of death out in the wilderness. The Bible picks up this slavery language to describe our relationship to sin later on in the New Testament. Paul in Romans 6, 7, and 8 talks about being a slave of sin, and when he describes our salvation, he describes it as being set free. So our condition apart from God can be described like what the Israelites are going through in their slavery in Egypt. So God sees our deepest need for salvation is not just external, but it's internal as well. We talk about that often here. We talk about our deep need for salvation, but you can't get very far in this passage without talking about God's work of salvation. As we look at God's work of salvation, let's read verses 13 and 14 together. This is the immediate response to the people fearing and grumbling and complaining, and we should have just stayed in Egypt And here's what Moses said. Now Moses, prophet, speaking on behalf of God, Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Just take that on the surface level for a minute. In the midst of such incredible fear, Moses tells the people, be still and be quiet. I use those two phrases in my house a lot. But I always describe time out as being still and being quiet. So Moses is kind of putting them in time out, I think. But he's putting them in time out, not really. But he's saying, hey, just sit here, be still, be quiet, and watch God work. When we see the God's work of salvation, what we're seeing is that God saves graciously. This phrase, salvation of the Lord, is in Hebrew, the word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word that gets translated Jesus. Fear not, stand firm and see Jesus. Now obviously he's not talking about the person of Jesus in this text, but it's no coincidence that that's the name of the Savior who would come thousands of years later to bring God's salvation. That was very intentional. But we see in this passage that God provides a sovereign salvation. There's absolutely nothing that the people of Israel do to contribute to this salvation. You see that in the text. There's nothing that they do to contribute to it. They just need to stand still and to watch. Now this is startling for our 21st century individualism. We would much prefer to save ourselves. That's, uh, I don't know if you watched much last night or any of the Heisman Trophy ceremony, but four college football players were finalists and they got to go to New York and there's this um, program on TV and they highlighted each player and told their story 
and then they kind of gave their resume as to why they could be considered the best college football player in the country this year, and then at the end they gave the award. And I watched a little bit of it just because the quarterback for Georgia was on there. And it was interesting watching the way they highlighted his story and then one of the other guys' story. You know what they highlighted in their stories? Adversity that they faced and the way they overcame it. You know what I think I heard come from every person's mouth who spoke? You gotta believe in yourself. You know, he never stopped believing in himself. He never stopped believing in himself when he faced this heart condition. He never stopped believing in himself when he got cut from the team. He never stopped believing in himself. We love a good story in our Western culture where we don't stop believing in ourselves. We work really hard to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and bring ourselves the salvation we really need. I even listened to a Christian podcast this morning and the tagline for the podcast was something like, we're helping you build the roadmap for your formation and your wholeness. And I thought, that sounds wonderful and godless. Now, thankfully, the person they were interviewing was very God-centered. But I thought, even in the way we try to express our spirituality, we put ourselves at the center and all that we're capable of. And if we learn, like they do in the Bible, that Exodus becomes a paradigm for God's salvation, if we learn anything, it's that God is at the center of it all. The truth is, we don't like this because we don't want the embarrassment of needing to ask for help. We don't want the shame of saying we can't save ourselves. We don't want the vulnerability of depending on another to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But that's exactly what salvation is. Look at Ephesians chapter two. I'm gonna read nine verses of Ephesians chapter two so we can get the full picture of what Paul's trying to show us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He alone is strong enough and gracious enough to save. Now, to say that salvation's by grace means a couple things. First of all, it means that we did not earn it. We did not deserve salvation. It also means that we did nothing to bring it about. There was nothing in our power that helped God save us. We contribute to our own salvation about as much as the Israelites contributed to theirs groaning and grumbling along the way as God meets our deepest need. They're told to simply be still and watch. We can learn a pattern of how God saves his people from Exodus chapter 14. As we move on, we, we, the, the kids' storybook Bible includes Exodus 14 and 15 together, and I had a really hard time figuring out how to sandwich all of this into one message because you essentially have the action, and this is a lot of the Old Testament, so this is a great paradigm to learn. 
you essentially have all the action in 14, and then in 15, you have a poetic retelling and interpreting of what just happened. So it doesn't sound like he's going through all the details, because when we retell a story, 21st century, American-ish, white-ish, Western-ish thinking people, we're thinking of the logical details. Well, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. They're retelling the story from a theological perspective in chapter 15. You often see this in the Old Testament where something will happen, and then God will offer a divine interpretation of what just happened so that you don't miss the point. And what we see, I think, in chapter 15 and even the end of chapter 14 is our response, their response to salvation. How did they respond? What did they do in light of God saving them? I'm just gonna pull out a couple of words for us, and the first is faith. In uh, chapter 14, the last couple of verses, 30 and 31, here's what God's word says. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the, sh- on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Faith. They were not saved by the strength of their faith. Because before salvation, I'm not sure that they believed. I think they were struggling. I think they were afraid. I think they were looking at the sea in front of them thinking, what in the world are we gonna do to get through this? Tim Keller points out that as their wall, it talks about how this wind blows and there's two great walls of water on either side as they pass through. And, and he talks about it's very likely that there were two different kinds of people walking through on dry ground. There were those who are walking, confident in the Lord, looking back at the Egyptians saying, ha, ha, look at this, look at us now. And then there were those walking through terrified thinking at any minute these waters are going to come crashing down over us and we're going to be swept away but the reality is that it wasn't the people who were more confident that made it through and the people who were less confident that stayed the size of their faith didn't matter as they walked through on dry ground now for me the way this looks like in my life I'm terrified of heights I really really hate high places. A number of years ago, uh, when we came to Shelford, we didn't have any kids. And Josh and Katie were coming to Shelford, and they didn't have any kids. And so we were able to say, hey, I, let's go to the Grand Canyon in a couple of weeks. We're going to be out there uh, for uh, the Southern Baptist Convention one summer, and we're just going to be in Phoenix. And me and Josh were going, and I was like, hey, why don't, why don't we just buy it? We already have hotel rooms, and we'll just make a fun trip of it. And uh, so we did. We, we drive up, spent some time in Sedona, and then drove through Flagstaff. I mean, it's unbelievably beautiful, and I had been to the Grand Canyon once as a kid, and uh, the thing they don't tell you about the Grand Canyon before you get there is, like, how close you can get. Like, you, you can just go. You can just go jump in, and I'm not a fan at all. Now, God, in his sovereign grace and kindness, allowed me to marry someone who has not a bit of fear of heights. And so Carrie is willing to just go as close as we can. Carrie's also creative. Carrie also loves to document memories. So, of course, we're considering how do we take the best picture. I'm thinking parking lot. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, Google Grand Canyon. You know what it looks like. Us at the parking lot with the sign proves we were there. Google image the rest, and you can imagine what we saw. Carrie's thinking, how close can we go? Get 
the picture. <laughs> and, I'm, and so, you know, I'm on the ground, and I'm scooting as close as I, and I'm thinking, there's no way. Carrie, confident as could be. Uh, let's go, uh, let me, let's go under this guardrail, because we can get, it's still safe, and we'll go over there, and I'm thinking, there is no way I'm getting any closer. Okay, lack of faith, total faith, we're standing in the same spot on the same rock taking a picture. Rock holds me up just fine in my total lack of faith, because the size and the strength of that rock is not dependent on me to have enough faith to hold me up. And her strength of faith in that rock didn't make that rock stronger for her. So the reality is, if, if we walk out on a frozen lake that's a foot thick, and you're doubting the whole time that it's gonna crash underneath your feet and you're gonna go sinking down, your lack of faith is not gonna make that ice break. You're gonna be safe. But if you walk as confident as can be out on a lake that's just frozen and just is maybe not even an eighth of an inch thick, it doesn't matter how confident you are, that ice is gonna break. And, and what I'm trying to say with these examples is the reality that they were not saved because of the size of their faith. They were saved because of the object of their faith. Coming to Jesus doesn't mean you don't have questions about the Bible, about Jesus, about theology, about history, about science. That's not what it means. We're not waiting for a passing grade of your faith where you can get to 60 or 70%. And then you can step into the kingdom of God. Well, once I just get all of these questions answered, I, I wish I could just see Jesus the way those early apostles did. If I could see him and see his scars, maybe I would believe. I've got great news for you, friend. No, you wouldn't. Jesus said as much. He told people in the Gospel of John, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, they talked about how, hey, if, if you're not gonna believe God's word, you're not gonna believe any other evidence either. But I want to encourage you this morning that it's not about the size of your faith. It's not about stepping into this room with every doubt resolved and, you know, if I could just, I've got these 10 books that I think are going to answer my question. If I can get through those and really wrap my mind around this thing, I believe in a pursuit of truth and knowledge. Absolutely. I have an office down the hall. Some of you didn't know that. I, did, I just showed Josh the other day. He was very interested. Didn't know I, had an, I have an office on the hall with lots of books that have lots of answers that I haven't read a lot of them but I love the pursuit of knowledge. But I hope we can have a faith-seeking understanding instead of an understanding that's seeking faith. Part of what we see here is that in light of God's salvation, it bolstered their faith. They were not saved because they had enough faith. They were saved because of the goodness and strength of God. The next thing we see in their response is we see praise truth is they broke out in song together. They broke out in song together. They didn't simply acknowledge God's work, but they actually expressed their gratitude for it together in song. And I wonder this morning, do you ever have a, a need and a desire to express your praise and worship to God for what he's done for you? When you consider how God has saved you, does it work its way out into praise and worship? Do you ever think back on your salvation and give thanks to the Lord for what he has saved you from and what he has saved you for? Do you sing like a saved person? Because that's what they're doing in Exodus 15. They're singing like God has saved them from a situation they could not have saved themselves from. We also see in Exodus 15, hope. Now, in verses 17 and 18, I want to read these couple because it's, it's interesting. The first 10 verses 
are really looking back at what God has done to save them and who God is, that he is strong, he is a mighty warrior, he has thrown horse and rider into the sea, he has brought us victory. But then in verse 11, there's kind of a shift where they begin to build on the character of God and look out into the future. And in verse 17, it says, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. They look at the good salvation of God, learn who he is, and that becomes a solid foundation for them to hope for the future. This language that's used here about the mountain of the Lord, his abode, his home, where he, the place where he dwells, the sanctuary, that's all temple language. They were looking forward to the time when God would reestablish his presence among his people. And they looked at how this act of salvation laid a foundation so they could hope that God would continue to work out a full and complete salvation in the future. They recognized that being saved from slavery was only part of the equation. They were also saved for the presence of God. Which brings me to the New Testament. In Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Some of you have wondered this week. I think God saved me from something. I don't feel like I'm gonna finish. I don't feel like I can finish this race. I, I don't, I mean, I don't, has God lost me? Has he lost track of me? Have I lost track of God? And I would encourage you to take up Philippians chapter one, verse six, memorize it and pray it and meditate on it, that God will finish the good work that he started in you. Now the last thing that we see in their response to salvation. We've looked at faith, we've looked at praise, we've looked at hope. I wanna take just a minute to look at the last couple of verses and look at the role that the women played in Exodus in these first 15 chapters. It says in verse 20, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It repeats the first line of the song, probably with the implication that they went on to sing the rest of the song. Now, what is happening here? Why these couple of verses? that single out the way. I mean, we already know all the people saying this. Why is it singling out that the women praised at the end? I think it's because <clears throat> there's actually a, a, a bookend here. This is actually closing the chapter on Pharaoh. Pharaoh's done. His army's been defeated. We're gonna move on to looking towards Israel, journeying towards Mount Sinai, receiving the law of God. Pharaoh's kind of out of the picture at this point. So in chapters one to 15, you have this story about Pharaoh. And in chapter 15, you have women having the last word over Pharaoh, saying, our God is victorious. But you also have in Exodus chapter one, women having the first word against Pharaoh and their revolt against him, their holy rebellion. Chapter one gives us example after example of women carrying along the story of God's people. The Hebrew midwives are faithful to God and disobey Pharaoh's orders to kill children. Then you have Moses' mother who is faithful to hide baby Moses and instead of dumping him in the river to die, he puts him into a, she puts him into a, a basket. That, you know what the word is for what she made? 
You know what the word is for what she made and put Moses in? A ark. She puts Moses in a little miniature ark so that he could make it through the flood waters of the river and instead of dying in the waters, be saved on the other side and bring salvation to the world. So you have Moses' mother doing that in faithfulness. You have Pharaoh's daughter finding him and committing to keep him and raise him. You have Moses' sister watching to find out what happens and then offering her help. All in chapter one. Then you skip ahead to chapter 15 and we see Miriam, sister of Moses, sister of Aaron, leading the women to sing this song of victorious praise to their God. We know Pharaoh's evil and Pharaoh's wicked, but I think what's miraculous about this is God is showing women stand up to Pharaoh in chapter one and women sing victoriously over Pharaoh in chapter 15. And this is just foreshadowing what's gonna happen in the rest of scripture in 1 Samuel. It's Hannah is wrestling with her unhealthy marriage to her unhealthy husband, longing for children. And when God provides Samuel, she bursts out in a song of prayer and says, God, you've provided salvation for me. And even that is making a way for Luke chapter one, where we find Mary's song of praise. It's called the Magnificat because that's the first word of her song where she's praising God, exalting him for what he has done to bring a great reversal to all humankind. The proud, the lifted up, the ones who exalt themselves are humble. And those who are hungry and those who are low are lifted up and exalted in God's presence. So if we see women in Exodus having the first and last word over evil, we see Mary having the first word over Jesus as she sings praises to God for providing him. But Mary's last words, her last appearances are actually not words at all. Last place we find Mary is crying at the foot of the cross. As her son, that was supposed to be the salvation of the world, is hanging and dying. But we know that he's hanging on the cross to make a way to save us out of death and into life. Scripture has this wonderful theme that's meant to make our hearts sing with the saints that have gone before us. And we see this same thing happen in Mary's life. She sings a song and then her last words are tears as God's making a way. But did you know the song of Moses actually shows up in the New Testament? The phrase, they, they sang the song of Moses. It shows up in Revelation. Shows up in Revelation chapter 15, verses two through four. John's writing and he's having this apocalyptic dream vision. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps in their hands. Picture, okay? Those who had conquered the beast, its image, and the number of its name is believers, saints, God's people who have conquered sin, death, Satan, and hell. Now how have they conquered? Not in their own strength. We know that from earlier in the book of Revelation. So they gather, and it says they gather <clears throat> those who had conquered with harps in their hands, ready to play and sing to God. What do they sing? Revelation 15, verse three. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What John quotes here as the song of Moses is actually not from Exodus 15. It's from these uh, different quotations all over the Old Testament that highlight God's character. The song of Moses became the prototypical worship song that a lot of other worship songs that were sang all throughout the Old Testament were modeled on. But this song that John references is not just the song of Moses, it's also the song of the Lamb, he says. He doesn't say it's two different songs. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, two titles for the same song. See, the true victory that the song of Moses pointed to was not just God's victory over Pharaoh, it was God's victory over sin, death, and hell. And this victory is won because the Lamb has been slain. Sin has been atoned for. Sins have been forgiven. The power of sin that held God's people in slavery has been overthrown. God's people are now free to walk with God forever. This victory is won because, like Revelation 5 says, this lamb who was slain is also the lion who is victorious. Exodus 14 and 15 is showing us how God saves us from our deepest need. And this deep need that we all have is met by the lamb who was slain. Let's pray. God, we love you this morning and we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that this book is all connected because boy, it'd be confusing if we didn't know where to go with it. God, thank you for the Bible. And God, thank you for Jesus that the Bible is pointing us to that we can have a personal relationship with you. Christ, thank you for your willingness to become a human being. What we celebrate this Christmas, God incarnate, fully God and fully man, walking this earth perfectly so that you could make your way to the cross to die on our behalf and be the perfect sacrificial lamb so that we one day with Every believer from all time will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And we will say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy of what, God? You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of all of our love. You are worthy of all of our lives. You are so worthy that there is no time limit on how long we will worship you and love you. It will simply be forever. And I pray this morning that eternity would break into right now. That this glimpse you've given us into your work, into your character, into who you are, would so captivate our minds and our hearts that we would open up our hands and give our lives to you. And that we would get to participate this morning in a bit of worship that we'll be doing for all eternity because of your great work. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.